Hi everyone, no clever sponsorship joke this episode, just a heartfelt thank you to all of you listening out there, and especially to those of you who support the show through Patreon and help keep us independent. This is our last show before the holidays and the final regular show for Volume 2. So we would like to wish you all a happy holidays and a great new year. And remember, if you do want to give something back, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make a pledge. Satisfaction guaranteed. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are listening to Death's 1993 album, Individual Thought Patterns. Boy, we and, sure are. Um, what an album it is. Uh, I said at the end of last show, um, when I revealed that this was the album we're going to talk about, that this is one of my favourite albums, uh, which a lot of people, I think, are surprised by, and we'll, we can get into that later. Um but it, it really is. It's, uh, you know, I'm not, well, I don't think of myself as a, a sort of big, intense death metal guy. Um, but I really do love this uh, and a couple of other death albums as well, um, you know, as sort of the pinnacle of what I do love about certain aspects of death metal. And this was a total uh, introduction for me. So this was, I don't want to say a pleasant surprise. Like, I'm not a big death metal fan either, nor am I a huge like super prog fan, you know what I mean? Like for when we talked about like Megadeth, that that they're sort of that good combination for me of like metal and prog elements, you know, sort of fused together. And so that's I didn't about know as to, prog as you want to get. Yeah, exactly. Like I in uh, you know elements of Queensrÿche and stuff like that, and, and some Dream Theater, but never really deep down that rabbit hole. And the same thing with death metal. And so what I kind of like about this group is that they they fit in the middle of that spectrum for me pretty well. Right. And and they didn't to start with. And again, we'll get into that later, but yeah, this was, you know, a, sort of true to form for me. <laughs> this, yep. uh, this album is not how they started out and they progressed and changed. And this was the album where they really sort of changed and lost quite a few of their fans actually, but gained a lot more like me. So, uh, so before we get onto that, let us just do uh, a bit of follow up. And the first thing I want to mention is, um, we're recording this on, uh, Sunday, the 18th of December. So, uh, apparently there was some little independent movie came out a couple of days ago called Rogue One or something. Yeah, uh, sort of a dirty Dezenish <laughs> grindhouse, you know, yeah. small production. Yeah, yeah, just a little thing. Um, and it's probably safe to say safe to assume that the vast majority of the people listening to this show ha- are probably either have seen the movie or are intending to see the movie and are, you know, sort of generally Star Wars fans. So... I wanted to mention that uh, I am going to be doing another of the uh, Rebel Podcasting uh, group panels on the Incomparable next week uh, about discussing Rogue One with uh, the sort of the UK contingent plus our honorary Brit Dan Moran. Uh, and you can hear that on theincomparable.com. That'll probably be live sort of Wednesday or Thursday. It'll be close to Christmas because we're recording on Tuesday. Uh, and I believe you're going to talk about it on your podcast, Secret Identity, as well. Uh, yeah, Matt and I will definitely have a discussion about that. It probably, I think for fans of this show, the discussion that you're going to have will be more of that deep dive that, that people are probably used to hearing from the two of us here, but Matt and I will definitely be discussing, discussing it on Secret Identity, and hopefully that episode will go up before 
Christmas as well. So, uh, so yeah, plenty, plenty of discussion for people to latch on to if they want to hear people talk about Rogue One. Because if we started to get into it here, it would be another four-hour podcast. Oh, forget it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the <laughs> last year on The Incomparable, they uh, did, in total, I think something close to nine hours of programming about The Force Awakens, uh, because they had some, like, three or four different panels all discussing it on separate shows. <laughs> well, and it's it, definitely a movie that, even outside of the execution of it, because it is such a connective tissue in the Star Wars universe. Like, man, you could yeah, you could talk about those connections for quite a long time. Oh, we even managed to do an almost two-hour show about the uh, trailer uh, earlier in the ninety-second oh, trailer, and we did a two-hour show discussing it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, as I say, that'll uh, you know, I imagine most of our listeners might be interested in that. So, yeah, go and listen to that. Um, uh, and then, uh, once again, as always, the Facebook group, our Facebook group, which is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out has been rather busy since our last episode. It has been. There's a humongous thread on the, not only albums of the year, but albums that people would like to get other people to check out. Um, uh, I think it was Kenneth White that started the post an album and let us know a song from it that you really dig and why people should check it out. So if you're looking for stuff to listen to and, and maybe looking for things that you might have missed in 2016, there is now a pretty strong thread going about that. Um, there's a huge thread, obviously, about the new Metallica album. And in terms of feedback for Amon Amarth's Yams Viking, which was our last episode, we had a good discussion about that, too. And I'll just read a couple of quick uh, contents. People were very impressed with how quickly that episode followed the one before it. <laughs> it was positively so, speedy for us, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I think, and I think this one's even quicker. And so I think pe- people are probably going to, uh, hopefully we'll be rounding out the year in a very positive fashion. Cause I think people will be pleasantly surprised again. Uh, Daniel loaf said, I really look forward to hear what you guys have to say about Amon Amarth because I've never heard of them. And as a prideful Swede on our metal output, I feel shame. Uh, so, <laughs> Uh, Andrew said, sweet, look forward to listening to this. And then, of course, when people got to listen to it, Dan Summer said, my thoughts on Amonimarth require a metaphor. Imagine you got introduced to Deadpool and really loved everything about the character, the weapons, the ultraviolence, the pouches, but especially the humor. (laughs) Then someone introduced you to a comic character called Deathstroke, who seems like a grim and gritty, humorless knockoff of the character you love. Everything else might be there. Some things might even be better, but you miss the humor. In fact, the seriousness of Deathstroke comes across as lame. He says, well, I'm an Ailstorm fan, and at least this Amon Amarth album seems like Ailstorm after having all the fun removed. Yeah, that was a weird one, because I had actually heard of Ailstorm. I mean, I'm not, you know, sort of a fan and not a regular listener, but I had heard of them. And I, you know, as we discussed, I hadn't really, you know, heard that much about Amon Amarth at all, but I had heard of Ailstorm. And I didn't make that sort of comparison until... Dan posted that, and then I thought, ah, actually, he's kind of got a point there, actually. I mean, I would rather listen, personally, to a Monomath than Ailstorm, but he has got a point. He totally does, and I went and listened to some of Ailstorm just to kind of get a feel for that, and, and he's right. Ailstorm, to me, is more like a Halloween in terms of their uh, sort of uh, fun level right. approach to right. the music, but um, for that particular type of music the way that Amon Amarth executes it is kind of where I need it to be. 
And that just really clicks with me. So uh, David Lawrence said, fun album. And man, give me three hours worth of 1,000 Burning Arrows. Amazing song. Now, I thought that was interesting because that was like your least favorite song yeah. on the album, <laughs> yeah. which is, is not uncommon for uh, for us to be on completely. <laughs> no. But that was, that, there's some great pieces to that song. But that one really stuck out to him. Uh, Kenneth White said, this was my first exposure to Amon Amarth. I'd heard the name before, but Viking metal was not something I'd ever bothered with. And I have to say, I was a little skeptical. The opening Iron Maiden bit in First Kill left me rolling my eyes. I was afraid it was going to be a retro. It was going to be retro nonsense. So I was delighted when the melodic death metal kicked in. By the end of the song, I was practically standing on the table bellowing, and I am no man's son. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, Greg Anderson, I re- I enjoyed this show. Amon Amarth had been on my radar, and I liked a few songs I'd heard, but not examined them closely. I'll be giving a few more of their albums a listen. I'm also hoping the show might mean a Sabaton, or dare I say, Manowar album could be in the podcast in the near future. I would say a Manowar album is almost certainly on the cards somewhere. I don't know where. I don't know when, but uh, there are one or two Manowar albums. To be perfectly honest with you, most of them. I kind of, you know, sort of, I do roll my eyes at a little, but there are one or two that I do actually really like. Um, and, you know, love or hate Man of War, you have to respect that they've been around for a long time doing their thing and never once kind of, you know, backing away from doing their thing. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's funny you mention that because, like, Man of War, I've always known about, but never been huge into, but much like a band like Saxon, and those are obviously very different bands, but there are bands that have stood the test of time that I am now examining much more closely right. at this stage of my life and going back and really digging into their back catalog because in order to have lasted that long, there's something there. There's got to you know, be something to absolutely. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so and that, Man of War uh, is one of those. I actually started digging into some of their albums since that comment went up. Well, and much like you've said about Saxon, I never, I've never seen Saxon live, but much like you've said about Saxon, uh, Man of War are, most of their sort of modern reputation is built on their live show. They are, you know, an amazing live band. I mean, for a while, they had that silly, gimmicky Guinness World Record thing of being the loudest band in the world. Right. Which, which like, changes hands every, you know, few years. Um, but, you know, re- regardless of that, they just have a reputation for being a blazing live band, really, really tight, and just putting on an amazing show. Um, and, you know, and in this day and age, as we've said, frankly, playing live is where you're going to make most of your money, so more power to them. Yeah, and just a note on Saxon, if you have not listened to their last album, which I think was 2015, called Battering Ram, it is amazing, and I'm pretty sure Andy Sneap produced that, so from a production level, (laughs) yeah, from a production level, and I think he's producing their new one, which is supposed to come out this year, Uh, amazing, and and really, I think, a lot deeper than, than people would probably think if they just think of Saxon as like an arena rock sort of thing um let's see, i should Tony. give that a listen because i was just gonna say i haven't listened to that and there's a few albums that i i'm gonna be doing so much listening over the holidays me too <laughs> me too man I, I still haven't listened to the new testament album dude same I'm, here it's, and it's like testament they're one of my favorite bands and i i've got it but i have not had because i i want to sit down and listen to it properly i don't just want to put it on in the background while i'm doing something else you know there's right and so as we've much... talked about here like when when i'm when we're prepping for a particular episode of the show like that in my mental cassette player there's one album until we talk about it on the show and then i'm able to take it out of my mental cassette player and sort of move on and so i haven't given the testament album a good thorough listening yet and there's like five other albums that i'm dying i want to hear the new alter bridge that just came out because i heard good things about that too there's a bunch of them that i want to check out 
Yeah, so much listening to do over the holidays. <laughs> uh, Tony Unsworth said, I, I knew from the get-go that this wasn't going to be my bag, and indeed it wasn't, but I still listened to the whole podcast and enjoyed every minute of it despite not liking the music, and that's the mark of a great podcast. Looking forward to the next one, which I suspect will be more my bag. So uh, it's always Excellent. great to hear people enjoy the show, even when they're not that big into the album we talk about. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, I hope this one is more up your alley. But uh, yeah, it's good to know that, you know, people enjoy our inane blatherings, uh, <laughs> you know, just even if they don't enjoy the music. Right. <laughs> because we do, you know, we try to have fun. <laughs> uh, Scott Parker Hall said, enjoyed the show very much. I used to like Amon Amarth a while back and decided to give this new album a listen. Too early to say if I like them better now or, you know, back then. Uh, and Kenny Mobley said, thanks for the show. One of my favorites. I was aware but indifferent to Amon Amarth before this episode, but Brian's love for the album intrigued me. He was right. I love it as well, and now I'm wondering why I waited so long to check them out. I have that feeling a lot (laughs) with some of the albums that we've (laughs) talked about on this show, where I'm like, where, how was I this late to the party? So a big shout out to our community on the Facebook page and on Twitter, who in the two years or so, or, you know, year and a half that we've done the show, have really either made me go back and examine some of those bands that I've missed or introduced me to whole different genres and bands because, man, I don't know where I'm going to find the time to listen to all that stuff, but this there's been so many eye-opening experiences where I'm, I'm now, I've now got more bands to add to my sort of repertoire. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, it's like books. I mean, I'm sure you, you like me, have got a, a to-read pile that's as tall oh, as, you, as you, you know, taller than you even, um, which is frustrating but at the same time isn't that a better situation than sitting there going everything's crap there's nothing new that i want to listen to or read or uh, you know i'd much rather have a mountain of stuff that i'm really excited about that i don't have time to get to than just be sat there going oh god everything's rubbish yeah oh absolutely and and what i've been doing especially this year is forcing myself to actually pick something up because when you have that pile that's so huge you're always like well, I might not have time to read this whole thing, or I might not, and, and then you, you don't end up reading or listening anything, to or watching yeah, anything. Yeah. And so, you know, I have a short box of comics that is right next to my desk, and anytime I find myself, like, glazing over at the possibilities of what, I just reach into the box and grab something and start reading it, just to kind of <laughs> kickstart that and break myself out of it. But, but yeah, I would totally rather have things I need to catch up on, and especially in the digital age now, like, I, I buy books like... I drink water. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, oh, they're having a sale on horror novels today. There's five novels that went into my digital bookshelf. And God forbid I ever walk into a used bookstore because I just buy copies of stuff I already have. And yeah, it's unbelievable. My bookshelves yeah. are falling apart. I need to build more. So, but yeah, more, more is better when it comes to stories and music. Yeah. Well, and music as well, exactly, exactly, yeah. So, like I say, yeah, it's it is frustrating on the one hand, but I would much rather be in that situation than be sitting there wondering where's all the good new stuff. Right. Uh, right. Shall we uh, move on to the band then? Uh, sure. Absolutely, sure. And, and talk about death because I mean, like I've said, I'm not you know a sort of a massive death metal guy or at least i don't think of myself as i mean i suppose i am more into it than some but um the thing about death is that they were one of the first death metal bands um of course they were you know they nabbed the name <laughs> don't you think you know <laughs> the first uh, the first death metal bands were all like oh damn it we wanted that um but they are kind of there, there was them and a band called possessed uh-huh 
uh, featuring Larry Lalonde, by the way, of Primus, <laughs> who is, uh, you know, people sort of listen to Primus and they don't realise Larry Lalonde is an amazing guitarist, like, you know, technically incredibly talented and gifted and started out yeah in like a death metal band anyway. there was like a six month period where i was into primus and it, i think it was uh, i think it was, it was the, the same uh, six months everybody else was it yeah. was the same six months that everybody else is in, it was into primus uh, yeah but they never they never super clicked in the although i mean obviously less is an amazing bass player and that oh, yeah, will yeah. always be something that you know it makes them worth listening to but yeah yeah, they're all uh, amazing musicians uh, in Primus. You know, that's one of the because oh, they sure. are essentially a jazz band. You know, um, anyway. So there was death and there was possessed, and there's this eternal argument amongst their fans about who was the first death metal band and who released the first true death metal record. Um, and to the point where it even like has leaked onto Wikipedia. It's kind of hilarious if you go and you know sort of read their various entries for the band and albums and stuff on Wikipedia, uh, you'll see that, uh, you know, their fans are clearly sort of, you know, sneaking bits in. and Editing g- back and forth. Well, and tr- just trying to find as many citations as they can, like, uh-huh. you know, um, like uh, Tony Iommi says Possessed were the first death metal band, and then on Death's page you'll get Possessed were more thrash, and critics agree that Death was the first death metal band. Oh, right, right, just- right. <laughs> just on and on and on. It's like, guys, just, who, you know, ladies, you're both pretty just stop arguing right and it's like (laughs) you're talking about an entire genre here like there's room for people to be part of that foundation you know like it doesn't it's not built on the top of a pinhead for crying out loud it's a foundation exactly and i'm sure that the truth is much messier you know the truth because like any scene you know the death metal scene especially in florida was really quite incestuous you know you only have to look at the bios of most of the musicians who were around at that time. And apart from the band leaders, people like uh, Chuck Schuldner of Death and then Trey Asgathoth of Morbid Angel, Glenn Benton from Deicide, you know, people like that, who headed up the bands. Obviously, they're with one band. through, But everybody else around them is constantly in and out of one another's bands, um, and especially before they all sort of blew up and got record deals and stuff. So I'm sure that the truth is, yeah, you know, a lot messier. And the interesting thing for me was looking at this is that these guys are are from uh, Florida, as yes. opposed to like the Bay Area. You know what I mean, where you just hear so many birth stories with you know with thrash and all that kind of stuff. And so it was. I, I just thought it was interesting that this is a completely other part of the country that this music is coming from. Right, right. Well, Sheldoner did actually move to San Francisco a couple of times. Uh, you know, sort of, he went to Bay Area, oh no, sorry, to the Bay Area once and then to Los Angeles once as well, bizarrely. Uh, sort of in the early days when he was trying to form the band and sort of get everything together. But by the time, I'm pretty sure by the time they released their first album, which was Scream Bloody Gore, uh, in 1987, uh, by that time, basically, he was permanently back in Florida, you know. Uh, and obviously, yes, at that point, surrounded by all the other Florida death metal bands. I always found it really weird that, of all the places, Florida, you know, this sort of, like, land of eternal sunshine and palm trees and stuff, was absolutely filled to the brim with death metal bands. It's, uh, I mean, I've never been well, to Florida, so I still don't quite understand it. But if you follow the news uh, right, that Florida comes out man. of Florida, yeah, just go, just go follow <laughs> yeah. Dan Evans on Facebook, and you'll yeah. see, you'll see uh, the Florida. It, it is the Hellmouth. So, well, that's it, what I was going to say. Perfect sense to me. I, why people I know who are from Florida, when I tell them this, go, oh no, no, trust me. <laughs> right? They're like, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, there yeah. are sinkholes that literally people's houses get sucked into the abyss in as the ground opens up and swallows them whole, and that's just uh, that's just one. 
yeah. of many exciting things that are happening down in Florida. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, um, but Florida was also home to uh, Morris Sound Studios. Um, and I mentioned that because, uh, what was his name? God almighty, uh, Scott something, Scott Burns, who ran Morris Sound. Uh, famously, he doesn't produce anymore. I think he's a computer engineer or something now. Um, but for years, he was a producer and he owned this studio and produced dozens dozens of amazing and you know sort of now legendary death metal albums including this one so yeah that was i mean that also helps the same we had the same thing in sweden with the swedish death metal sound in the 90s where everybody kind of clustered around a studio and you know the question is of course did the studio arise because there were all these bands right or did the bands center around that because the studio was there you know who knows but it's really interesting that they all kind of, yeah, you know, sort of revolved around this studio. So anyway, yeah, Death performed in um, 1983 by Chuck Schuldner. Um Chuck Schuldner is now dead. He passed away in 2001 of uh, brain cancer. And that well, is a brutal, brutal it, story. Like, I read yeah. that last night, and I'm sure you're very familiar with it, but just the whole... You know, recovery and then the insurance costs and not being able to pay for medical care and it coming back and uh, just uh, just a heartbreaking, like, he thought he beat it and, uh, yep. man, just a yep. rough, everybody, rough. Everybody thought he had. Uh, so this is actually, the, this is the, it was just last week on December 13th as well, uh, which is not deliberate. I didn't actually remember that when, you know, we scheduled this show, but yeah, this is basically the 15th anniversary of his death. Um and, uh, yeah, what a tragedy because, you know, he was an innovator. He was, you know, a legend in the death metal scene and, uh, he was taken, you know, way too soon. That's why. And it wasn't long after Schuldner had died that Chuck Billy was diagnosed with cancer. And I think that's partly why there was such a massive rallying around right. when that happened in the metal community, because it wasn't that long that we'd lost Chuck Schuldner and everybody was like, oh, fucking hell, not. Chuck right, Billy as well. Right. You know? We're not like, going to let, you know, fool us once. We're not yeah. going to let it happen again. Yeah. I mean, luckily, obviously, Chuck Billy did uh, beat his cancer. Yes. And he's, as far as I know, he's been absolutely fine since, thank goodness. But uh, yeah, what a, an absolute tragedy. And here's the real, well, you know, a further tragedy is Chuck Schuldner became a musician because of the death of his older brother when he was nine years old. His brother, I think, was 16 at the time. Um, and uh, that was basically why he became a musician. His parents bought him an acoustic guitar and sent him for like acoustic classical lessons, which he didn't enjoy, but it got him familiar enough with the guitar that then he went off, found an electric guitar and basically taught himself. He's pretty much, he was pretty much self-taught. Um, and it was that sort of tragedy that got him into writing music and you know i mean it doesn't take a genius to assume that that's probably why he gravitated towards metal and became this sort of you know was investigating the real edges of extreme metal right. as a kind of catharsis oh definitely and, and just jumping into some of their lyrics like that actually makes a lot of sense now yeah yeah i mean there's one song in particular on this album which i am almost certain is specifically about the death of his brother. Um, but his mother and his older sister have kind of been the keepers of the faith since his death to the point where they will chat to fans on the, uh, like they have a remembrance book on the webpage and they have a Facebook group where they or his ex manager who now sort of like, you know, he's, um, the 
controller if you like you know like who, the estate of, uh, sort of thing right of the i of his ip and the estate you know sort of looks after it and what have you uh we'll you know chat back and forth with fans and uh i gather that his <laughs> chuck's mum and sister you know weren't really metal people <laughs> um but you know but obviously nevertheless he was you know their son and brother uh and they do they're very not protective but very sort of they appreciate the fact that uh you know he had so many fans and that he made a difference to so many people's lives with his music and his work and they're like i say not necessarily protective of that but they are kind of they want to make sure that you know that sort right. of mess- message of positivity and what have you continues that that is one of the greatest things about the metal community just sort of in general and how awesome is it every time that you introduce somebody to this community and they're and they come away or like i always think like i I always drag friends of mine to metal shows when i don't have someone to go with and frequently you know one of my buddies who's not really a metal fan at all i've sort of morphed into a metal fan over the years and inevitably everybody is always so surprised at how chill and friendly metalheads are when they you know get to spend time with them and get to meet them and I, i just that to me is just such an awesome uh, sort of discovery for people when they're like, wow, these metalheads are really super nice. And it's like, yeah, because the music is the catharsis. And, that, exactly. and then and it's like, uh, I just love that about, you know, metal in general. And it's awesome that the family gets to experience that from the fans that love, but also understands it and wants to continue to, to sort of um, uphold that legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, continuing that aside, you I don't know what it's like in the States, but around here, you go into town on a weekend, and it's the people, you know, listening to chart hits and, uh, you know, sort of soft rock and what have you, are the ones who are getting completely blind drunk and, you know, shoving glasses in one another's faces. Oh, you absolutely. The, you go to the rock pub, and they're just blind drunk, passed out, giggling. It's the same thing with horror fans, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's why, like, there's, there's a show out here, and if people are in the Northeast, then they, they'll probably know what it is. But there's a show called Rock and Shock, and every year it is a, like, a three-day heavy metal and horror festival and so you have horror fans who aren't into metal that come to the show you have metal fans that aren't into horror that come to the show and and inevitably that discovery is made every year when people are just coming out of that show saying wow what a what an amazingly nice group of people right and they're they're all you know they're getting their machete signed by kane hodder who was jason you know and and they're you know happy as a as a clam and uh and everybody's just kind of hanging out and and having fun, and it it is. It's it's. You're absolutely right. It's the people who are not getting that, getting all that stuff out through the music they listen to or the movies they watch or whatever that you, you have to worry about. Because the the ones that are, that's our therapy, and so exactly. that, that that helps keep us on the level. Yeah, as you said, it's catharsis. So, and that's why I mean that kind of leads into, like I say, you know, some people may be surprised that I like this band because they are they they are quite technical. You know, Chuck Schuldner was, he wasn't mostly self-taught, but he was nevertheless an amazing musician. Amazing. And all of the musicians on this band, and pretty much all of the musicians that he, because Death's personnel was very much a, you know, sort of spinal tap-like revolving door, but for the entire band, not just the drummer. Uh, but all of the session musicians that he uh, had in the band and that he used both in the studio and on tour were amazing musicians, you know, like incredibly gifted, technical and talented musicians. So, you know, that's not kind of 100% my wheelhouse, but I wanted to sort of explain, because when we announced this band, like there were a few people on the Facebook page going, really, really? Um, 
maybe I haven't been sort of clear enough, you know, when I've talked about this in the past, and that is that I have nothing against technical musicianship. I mean, yeah, go and listen to early Genesis, uh, which is full of virtuoso displays of like technical ability, you know, and they're like one of my favorite bands ever. What I don't like is when technicality is used as a crutch to distract from poor songwriting. Um, And, you know, that's something that I think some metal bands are guilty of uh, because for me and i've said this many times it always comes back to the songwriting for me and i would rather listen i would always rather listen to a great two-minute song recorded in someone's garage on a four track <laughs> than you know a 20 minute perfectly produced snore fest from somebody just walking up and down the fretboard constantly i will say that one question that kept popping into my mind as i listened to this album is it, I understand even less now how you can dislike Megadeth and <laughs> find this band. Like I just kept listening to it, thinking I don't, I don't get it. Like I don't under like the criticisms that you've lobbed at Megadeth in the past. I felt like are very present in this album, and I really like this album. But I was like, huh, okay, I'm gonna have to go back at Anthony with the whole Megadeth thing because like th- this album made me to me these guys sound like they fit somewhere right in between Megadeth and Slayer. There are very Slayer-esque riffs on this album and, yes, and are, time yeah. changes and things like that. That, But what I like about it is then they drift back over to the more sort of proggy and technical side of things, which for me, when I listen to Slayer, I get lost in the white noise of the never-ending assault sometimes. And what I like about this album is this album will switch right back up and go back into the more technical and um, and even classical kind of stuff. And I really, really like that. And so for me, this is like, man, if I can't decide if I wanted to listen to Megadeth or Slayer today, I could put this death album in. <laughs> and it fits right in the middle of that for me. And I, I really liked that about this. But I was also scratching my head saying, I don't like I think Anthony just doesn't like Dave Mustaine, and that's what that's what's <laughs> keeping him from getting into Megadeth. But it's, uh, I really don't like Dave Mustaine's voice. I mean, that is a big part of it, and I, I've never made any secret of that. I really, really can't stand his singing voice, mm. and that's a really big barrier for me to get over. Um, but also, I don't know. I just think these are better songs musically, generally, <clears throat> generally speaking. Um, I think this is closer to Slayer than Megadeth, and I do like Slayer more than Megadeth. Although, you know, as we've said before, I'm not a huge Slayer fan either. I like them just fine, but I'm not like a mega fan or anything. Um, but th- this does kind of link to how I found this album, because like I say, again, I'm not a massive you know, like obsessive death metal fan. And at the time when this came out, you see their earlier, Death's earlier albums were kind of like that in that they were, a lot of it was, you know, kind of white noise blast beat stuff. Um, And up until this point, all I really knew of death metal was either uh, other... Contem- the contemporary Florida stuff, as I mentioned, like Morbid Angel and Deicide, who really do suffer from being technical at the expense of songwriting and yeah. are really kind of one-note bands. Uh, all their early stuff, I admit I'm not so familiar with their late stuff, but their early stuff, like, you know, every song is just, oh, I'm so evil, I'm the most evil. Um, and it's just, and, the, and yeah, the music is relentlessly technical with very little melody, and I'm just like, oh, I'm so bored. Um, or the underground stuff, 
which was coming out of uh, mostly Scandinavia, Europe, mostly Scandinavia, a bit of, you know, sort of Germany as well, uh, which I heard on tape trading compilations. I remember sending off, like, you know, send two pounds to this address and get, like, a badly recorded (laughs) C90, you know, full of bands you've never heard of, recording, like, say, on a four-track in their garage. That's exactly what they were doing. Sure. Um, And that was also mostly pretty terrible. But, you know, I was, at the time, seeking out new stuff, and I thought, well, why not? Um, ironically, I was thinking about this and looking back, we'd probably now class a lot of that stuff actually as black metal, I think, rather than death metal. Um, but again, black metal is not something that I'm massively into, uh, even now. So, you know, um, so, and then along came this album, basically death. And then this album and the next album symbolic were kind of a revelation to me actually, and got me more interested ironically than in going back and thinking okay maybe i should go and listen to more early death metal stuff because uh what this album sort of showed me was that you could have death metal stuff that was really heavy really really heavy but also had great songs with some real musical dynamics going on this is something again that i know i bang on about a lot but this album is really dynamic there are a couple of tracks not so much, but most of the album really does like vary, you know, from sort of, uh, you know, it has peaks and valleys musically. Um, I think what uh, this album does for me is it, is it highlights the fact that you can't paint with too broad a brush, right? Because there are such variations within genres that right. what, what this show and certainly this, this particular, um, album in terms of death metal has really, and Amon Amarth's, you know, has really kind of hammered home for me is that there are some genres that I did not pay much attention to coming up in my younger years because I just felt like I had heard a few things and it just wasn't for me. Going back now, there is a slice of each genre where you can find exactly what you want. And this is one of those albums where I was like, oh, Okay, if this is if this is death metal, I can listen to this. This is exactly in my wheelhouse of like the types of <laughs> elements that I like to come together. And so, uh, so yeah. Well, and I was so happy you picked this album because the musicians on this album have connections to a lot of other music oh, yeah. that I listen yeah, to. Yeah. And I was so happy when I started because I started listening to it. And I'm like, wait a second, I that sounds familiar. And it was Gene Hoagland at first where I was yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. sounds like, oh, it is Gene Hoagland. Okay, good. And so, um, so yeah, but I, I, for me, it's that whole like variations within a genre. There is a flavor of this type of genre that fits exactly what your tastes are, you know? Right. And that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. That like I had dismissed a lot of death metal. And then I think I mentioned uh, at the end of the last show that it was a review in Kerrang. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> I discovered quite a lot of music through Kerrang! in the 90s. Don't knock it. Um, oh, I got uh, nothing but love for Kerrang! Yeah, and the review of this album, I can't remember who it was by, but whoever it was basically said, you know, like, you may think that death metal is just a bunch of people, you know, grunting and screaming and playing blast beats, but, you know, Chuck Schuldner is trying to expand that palette, and this is the result. This is kind of the birth of progressive death metal and i read that and i was like well i do kind of think that about death metal at the moment and i do like progressive music so maybe i should give this a go and lo and behold went out and bought i think i bought this on vinyl um and yeah just pretty much from the first note immediately fell in love with it so that was exactly it for me it was okay i'm not that much into this genre but this particular album and this band at this time this i can really get into yep 
Um, oh, and that was the other thing. Uh, talking about sort of like, you know, other bands and what have you, and me not being that much into it was uh, lyrics. Lyrically, uh, I love what Chuck Schuldner started to do. And he actually started to do this, I know now, on the previous album, which is called Human. Um, where he started to really get away from the sort of gore and horror movie style lyrics, which I don't mind in small doses, but I'm I'm not interested in listening to an entire album's worth of "Ooh, I'm so evil," "Ooh, blood and guts." It just you know just doesn't do a lot for me. Um, it's funny you mention that, and I'm just going to cut in real quick with a with an interview that Chuck did. There, I looked back to see if there were interviews from the time, and he had done an interview with uh, Terrorizer, which was a UK magazine. I, I uh, remember Terrorizer; it was a great mag. Yeah. So, uh, and someone said, at this point, how would you say that the material is different, if at all, from the stuff on Human? And he said, I think that it's definitely going to be an extremely heavy record. I've had a lot of material written for quite some time now, but I've recently gone through everything. I've done a lot of rearranging and sifting out, and I'm really happy with the recordings I've done of everything. Uh, I think it's very catchy. It's got very heavy elements. It's got a melodic edge to it as well. Hopefully people will really dig it. I'm not going to let people down, that's for sure, in my opinion. Uh, And then the person followed that up and said, do you think there'll be a noticeable difference between this next record and the last one? And uh, they said a lot of people felt that with the exception of Sean's input, which made the last record sound quite different from spiritual healing, a lot of the musical ideas in terms of the actual riffing was this in the same ballpark as what you'd done on your third album. And he says, well, as a guitar player, I know for a fact that definitely it's far more technical and has a lot much uh, has a lot more varied rhythm parts. I don't know why people might think that, but that's their opinion. But on Human, in my opinion, there were a lot of things guitar-wise that weren't that just weren't expressed on spiritual. Cleaner parts, more harmony harmonizing much more emphasis on making the two guitars more apparent. So I kind of like that just because it sort of shows you the headspace that he was coming out of the previous album and into this one. Um, And in that particular one where he was talking about how people have their own opinions about it, that goes back to the broad brush comment that we made where, where, you know, as the guy arranging it, he's very clear on how technical and varied that it is. Uh, And so I I thought that was an, an interesting handling of kind of a, vanilla question you know where where you always get that from the interviewer right how is this different from your last thing right right and he did a nice job with that he did absolutely and uh like yeah i mean that kind of i'd read interviews uh since you know that sort of made that clear as well but even just in the music i think you can if you do that if you listen to death's early stuff uh and compare it to this you can tell that he is clearly trying to do something different. He's trying to sort of expand the form and expand the genre. Uh, and I think that's, you know, very commendable. Um, so he has a question about that, which I'm just going to throw in. I don't, I hate to keep interrupting you, but he said, no, no, uh, the, so the interviewer says some people felt that human was a bit too technical in places, particularly from the drummer standpoint, especially, which I thought was funny because obviously with Gene Hoagland coming <laughs> yeah. up on the next album, dude, you're, you're, you're about to get blown away. Uh, they said, especially since this genre of music is supposed to be so stripped down to its barest basics. And this is what Chuck said. He said, well, if people felt that way, they're listening to music that they shouldn't be listening to. Stage Chuck. Death, <laughs> he says, death is not a limited band where I want the same simple beat through everything. I'm inspired 
um, by a lot of bands that are not death metal. I've got influences that come from lots of different types of music, lots of different types of metal. My influences are definitely metal-oriented, but that's going to come out, and it's always been that way. On Human, I had better musicians, musicians that I would have loved to have been able to play with even earlier than I did. And to say being technical isn't proper in this type of band, I just think that's a narrow-minded statement. It's coming from someone who doesn't understand my direction. They don't have to like it. But if you really want to get into the reasoning of it, death isn't a band that I want to limit. Let's put it that way. Yep. And, and I think that really came across in the last few albums that he made. Because this was, he made this, then Symbolic, and then one more album, The Sound of Perseverance, and then he died. So, you know, this is like the sort of last but two album uh, that he made. And I think in those last three albums, you can really see that. As I say, he's clearly trying not to repeat himself and trying to sort of expand what the band is and what death metal can be. And I, I just really respect that. And that dude, you can tell just from those answers, is a genius. And so when you're listening, and he's, he's not, to me, not coming across as pretentious at all, but you can tell when he's answering those questions that you could tell where he's thinking about this music from. Right, and that right. just sort of makes you have a deeper appreciation for it. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you, you know, I've sort of not, I don't want to be dismissive of the early death stuff, because if you go back and listen to those early albums, you can tell that he always had an affinity for drama for want of a better word like you know and sort of atmosphere some of the intros uh even on the first album to certain tracks are really atmospheric it's just that when they then get into the track most of the time it is just blast beats but um, i like that he brought in musicians that would bring those elements with them right because yes. you look at andy laroque who is coming from king diamond from king diamond for and, sake, yeah. and the pageantry and the gothic sort of um you know, just epicness of that type of music and his classical influence, you can immediately see which solos Andy is providing on this album and which solos Chuck is doing on this album. And I love that their styles are very, very different. Yeah. Um, but you can also hear how those two sounds meld together and how he, that was a conscious choice. I'm bringing this element into what I'm trying to do on this album. And this guy has that tool set like few others do, you know? Yeah. And I kind of love that. Well, and then on the bass, you know, with, oh, uh, dude, <laughs> with Steve DiGiorgio, which is just like, Good you know, who, Lord. I mean, you know, DiGiorgio, obviously most people now know him because he's one of those bassists who's been in just about every band. I think oh, he's currently in Testament, isn't he? He is currently in Testament, as is Gene Hoagland. And, right. uh, but if you look, go to Wikipedia and just look at this dude's discography, if you want to hear an album featuring him on it, you can go back for over the last decade and pretty much find an album every single year that he has played on. And the same thing with Gene Hoagland. Like they are, some people might look at that as those guys are hired guns, but I look at that as those dudes just want to play music 24 hours a day yep. and every different type of music and every different, DiGiorgio has a uh, jazz fusion band that you can go and find. It's called Dark Hall. So you can go on YouTube and check out some of his stuff. And if you think his bass playing is stratospheric on this album, which it is, it's sick. It's just like uh, everybody know I'm a huge fan of bass. This guy is supremely talented. Oh yeah. Well, and he does have that jazz influence and he brings that oh, to this album. Totally. Um, you can really hear it, you know, and I mean, talking about Chuck Schuldner's influences, I don't know if he had any jazz uh, influences, but I do know that, uh, for example, he was a fan of Queensryche. <laughs> Oh, you can totally hear that. I mean, it's becoming a drinking game now for me to mention either Queensryche <laughs> or Megadeth in an album, so people are half in the bag as they listen to this, and we haven't even gotten to the tracks yet. But but certainly, right? I mean, Queen, Queensryche 
was around, you know, as early, if not a little bit earlier than these guys. And, and like he said, he takes influence from a whole bunch of different types of metal. And so, you know, if if he appreciated progressive metal, obviously he's going to know who Queensryche is and, um, and, no, but I mean, um, he specifically did cite them as like, you know, a band that he liked and that he was influenced by. Well, and their early stuff is very, I think, influential, right? And so, um, so yeah, you and that's what I kind of like about that is, is in listening to this album, I hear a lot of elements of things that I like from other bands. And so that just hooks me deeper into what these guys are doing here. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, one other thing that I was going to point out was about his vocals, uh, which obviously is something that some people do, you know, much like how I don't like Dave Mustaine's vocals. Some people are really turned off by Chuck Schuldner's vocals. Um, I think they're fine because, you know, I grew up listening to Lemmy, so this is kind of a slightly higher-pitched version of Lemmy, really, to me. Um, I, I, You know what? That's a great point, and I would have counted myself on first listen in the camp of people that were turned off by his vocals. But what I came to appreciate is that the way this album is mixed he doesn't put his vocals out ahead of anything else and right. they become like another instrument in the production. And so I could just accept them from what they were from. I'm not a huge fan of his vocals. However, they did not take away from the rest of the album for me. Right. And he's almost, I mean, like I said, he's almost entirely self-taught as a musician uh, and completely self-taught as a vocalist. He didn't originally see himself as a vocalist. Uh, I think his very first, the first incarnation of death, which is called Mantis, he actually had like somebody else singing. Um, but I kind of get the impression that after lots of lineup changes and stuff, he basically couldn't find anyone else who would do it the way he imagined it in his head. Yep. And one of the things that, uh, that you will hear about Chuck Schuldner from a lot of people is that he was a perfectionist to the point of being a bit of an asshole sometimes. Uh, uh-huh. You know, without wanting to speak ill of the dead, um, there are a lot of people, you know, especially from the Florida scene, who were like, yeah, Chuck was, you know, could be an asshole sometimes. Um, but you could see that from the standpoint of when you look at the level of technicality that a band like this has, you can see that it takes a particular driving force behind that music. Oh, yeah, yeah. That yeah. needs to be very particular you know what yeah, i mean so it's, it's it has to be my way or the highway exactly. when you're doing that yeah. sort of thing and honestly with artists i don't have that much of a problem with that attitude um what is, which is no go ahead i was just going to say what's equally notable is that he is not notorious for being like violent or a drunk or abusive uh and you know he did help a lot of people with their careers such as gene hoglan um and a lot of people will say the opposite that actually Yes, he sort of like, you know, he was a hard taskmaster, but that's because he was a perfectionist. And then, in fact, he was actually a really nice guy. It's just if you didn't agree with him, he had no time for you. Well, and that's why I don't mind the fact that he has this sort of rotating musician thing going on with the music that he's putting together. Because it's clear from the get-go that it's his vision as you get into each one of these things. And it's the same thing with, again, I'm not a huge... Um, I don't know a ton about his music, but like Devin Townsend, right? Who will bring in different people to work with him and, and stuff like that. Like the, those types of situations where you have um, sort of a singular vision to me is different than, you know, four guys starting up a band in a garage and everybody's having equal input into the band. And then somewhere along the line that changes like yeah. that. That to me is a different story than, you know, this sort of singular vision of I'm going to bring people in that will help me achieve what I'm looking to do on this particular album, the particular story I'm trying to tell with this, you know, type of thing. And and so I kind of give that a lot more leeway when you're 
when you're bringing people in to your vision. Yeah, absolutely. And as I understand it, the first album, the first Death album, they were sort of a band, but very quickly after that album, they all kind of fell out and Chuck Schuldner was like, do you know what? Screw this. I'm just going to be me and I'll hire session people. Yep. Um, and from then on, obviously, yeah, it, from that point on, it was just his singular vision. Um, uh, apart from uh, the production on some of the albums is not that great. And I did want to mention that, like I say, this was uh, produced by Scott Burns at Morrisand, and it's not amazing uh, on this album. The next album, actually, Symbolic, is, in terms of just pure production, is way better. Like, everything's cleaner and crunchier and heavier and stuff. Um, but that's probably because that was the only album released by Roadrunner. Uh, and I'm guessing it had a bigger budget than this, right? Right. <laughs> Which because this does not sound like a big budget album. But I, and maybe this is just because I'm so used to listening to it for so many years. But I kind of like the sound on this because it is still a death metal album, you know. And perfectly cleanly produced death metal always sounds a little bit odd to me. Uh, you and, and you and I are around the same age, and I think that I am of the same mindset. Like I. I I, we already talked about this. I have a trouble with a lot of the remasters out there because they, they clean up something that I don't want cleaned up. Um, and in this album, I think it sounds amazing. I mean, you can clearly hear all of the... I, I like the right. mix. Uh, you can hear every instrument very distinctly enough to know, like from the guitar part, you know, you can clearly delineate Andy from from Chuck's guitar. Steve's yep. bass is everywhere on this. Uh, like, it is... Well, it is snaking <laughs> in and out of everything yeah. these guys are doing. Um, and Gene Hoagland's drums, which, I mean, the dude is the human drum machine, and he, but they don't overpower, yep. you know, what's happening. They're they're not too far up in the mix. And so I'm, I was completely fine with the mix on this. And I like the fact that Chuck's vocals are not pushed up above everything else um, yep. because you can always hear each individual element of the music, I think, equally, which is awesome. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. There is a, there is a remastered version. I think there are remasters of all of their albums out now. Um, and there is a remastered version of this album floating around out there, but I, I genuinely don't like it. Uh, as I say, some of that could be because I'm just so used to listening to this album, flaws and all. But also, uh, the remaster, in the process of making the, the low end more audible, actually literally just removes a lot of the treble from the mix. Right. And I, I think that does the guitars then a disservice. And yes. yeah, I just, I just don't think it sounds as good. Yep. I like, I love the original, uh, killing is my business from Megadeth. I love the original kill them all. Like I, I like that there's an energy to that, you know, lack yeah. of cleanliness that you, uh, sometimes the same rawness. In, yeah. And, and like for Megadeth, Mustaine screwed himself with that when he went and remastered all of their albums, like in the early two thousands, there's not one of the remasters that I think sounds anywhere near as good as any of the original, you know, production. Right. So give well, me the flaws, give me the original energy every day. And I do think it's notable that like all of the remasters were done after Chuck died. Like, you know, while he was alive, yep. there was never any question of remastering anything. And justice and, for all, but probably the only one, <laughs> no, like legitimately as i think about it like injustice for all and the lack of bass on that right, right. album might be the only one where i would prefer a remaster over the actual sound of the album but that's just because i love that album and i would like to hear it fuller you know right yeah maybe maybe so um but i was gonna say i i wonder if that and I don't know this at all, obviously, but I wonder if that's because Schuldner had this attitude of moving forward. 
uh-huh. of not not looking back. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, it's kind of, well, why would I remaster an old record? I'm not interested in that. I want to do something new. Right. Um, so this album is... Uh, from 1993, which, you know, long-time listeners will know is, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it was a kind of golden period <laughs> of metal. Uh, ten tracks, 41 minutes, so average length is obviously four minutes. Yep. Um, nothing longer than, the longest track is four minutes 50. Uh, and that does make it stand out from, as I say, the following album, Symbolic, which has a couple of much longer tracks on it. It is much more, and Symbolic's a really good album, really good, but it, it's much more progressive, much less death much more progressive um, than this album. And I, I tend to think if you... There are a few weak tracks on this album, and if you kind of took them out and slotted some of the best tracks from Symbolic on, you'd have kind of a perfect album for this period of the band. Um, but if you do like... I'm mentioning it because I want to say if you uh, to listeners, if you do like this album, if you've been listening to it and you've found that you do quite like this album, I strongly suggest that you then give Symbolic a listen because it is kind of like... Uh, do you remember when we did the Paradise Lost album? Yeah. Uh, and I I pointed out that, like, you know, Icon, the album we did, is kind of rough around the edges. Um, and the next album, Draconian Times, is the sort of, that's the big budget, well-produced, almost perfect album. But I found, I find Icon more interesting because it's a bit rough around the edges. It, I think, you know, you can hear the band figuring things out almost. And that's kind of like this one. You can... You can almost hear Sheldoner figuring out how to do this progressive death thing on individual thought patterns. And then by the time they get to Symbolic, he's worked it out. You know, he's got it you know, pretty much down pat. I think that's a great observation of sort of the where he was at with this album. Because to me, like this album, I like as a whole. And when I put the album on, it's almost like one, it's one experience for me. Like there wasn't, to me, there wasn't a lot of songs that jumped off the record as like, I need to put these in a separate playlist because this is an iconic, you know, uh, metal song that I'm going to continue to revisit time and time again. But this is an album where I don't have a lot, I I didn't skip any songs on this album. So I would put the album in and I would listen to Death for 41 minutes. And because he goes in so many different directions in almost every song that, to me, it almost it's it's all woven together in sort of one tapestry for me, um, and and him sort of experimenting with this boundary of the genre and figuring things out makes a lot of sense to me in terms of the overall feel of this album. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is uh, you, you can you can eat very easily, and I don't think it's necessarily you know wrong. You can very easily interpret this album overall as kind of a giant fuck you to the to the rest of the death metal scene um and especially his peers in florida uh because like i said there's no doubt that Sheldoner kind of saw what he was doing as the superior path to you know what they were doing uh-huh. um but on this album it's the almost like the first steps of it this is like the first uh it's like oh, i'm trying to think of an analogy it's like the it's like the first guy at high school who smokes dope <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? And he yeah. and he can't wait to tell everyone how amazing it is and how you silly kids don't understand because I've seen the light. That's kind of what this album is. And I don't mean to dismiss it like that, but it, I think you have to take it in that context of like he's clearly had this sort of you know uh, he's had the epiphany and he's trying right. to it's trying to get people on board with it. everybody else is still drinking beer and he's <laughs> yeah. trying to pull them forward like. He's saying right, no, 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 no. Just come over here. Uh, I know what you what you're doing is cool. I know you like that. I know that feels great right now. But step over here. Yeah, but trust me, this is better. Yeah, you're gonna and, like this better if you can just get into it. 
Right, exactly. And as I say, I think I think you can take this whole album in that sort of context. Um, and that's why, like I say, I think the next album is when he sort of maybe got over himself a little bit in that respect and is much more progressive and maybe even a little bit more confident, whereas this album is more sort of bombastic and just kind of trying to prove that it can be done. But right. like I said, that's why I find it more interesting and why I really like it, because it has that slightly rough edge to it of like, can we do this? Can we actually figure this out? You know, let's have a go. What I like about it is, and I agree with you, is that this is a this album challenges you as yeah. you listen to it. It's not an album that you can just sort of put on in the background and let <laughs> no <laughs> exist. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, and I I do that. I mean, I fall asleep listening to metal albums on an almost nightly basis, and so it's not that. It's just that there's so much happening in each song that it continually forces you to pay attention to it. Totally, totally, yeah. Um, all right, so let's get onto the tracks then. Um, all right, and uh, we start obviously with track one, uh, which is overactive imagination. This you were saying about like you know you don't you don't necessarily think of this album as having tracks that leap out at you. I do. There are a couple, and this is one of them. This track to me it kind of blows the wad because, as far as I'm concerned, this is the best track on the album. I uh, would agree, and I think, but I think this album is bookended very well. Yes, I do yes. like beginning and end track on this album, and this album really punches you in the face, like right out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very it's, it's very thrash prog like it feels thrashy and proggy immediately yep it, it's just a tour de force of yep. like songwriting and musicianship all kind of coming together in this yeah like a punch in the face of metal you know everybody's firing on all cylinders um it, it, hogland's drums are amazing Dude, on the, this he track. literally <laughs> is called the human drum machine and I know, and I know. Uh, <laughs> and he his control is otherworldly like it and is this is this is earlier in his career. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Like, this is one just, of his first pro albums. Yeah, man, alive. That this guy is just like. And then when you layer the bass over the top of that, it just having a drummer that is that good just allows everyone else in the band to not be tethered at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it. He is there, and he is 
consistent and reliable and it just ever present. And so you can just play off of that. And, and I feel like everybody is playing off of that. And it really just lends this furious, you know, sort of running forward feel to this whole song. Yeah. Well, and, and he does those amazing triplet double oh, kicks dude, as well, which just, are just like, you know, he kind of, I don't think he necessarily invented them or pioneered them, but he's just so good at them. But yeah. There's gets, a, no, I'm no, sorry. There's a lot of stuff uh, that goes about like him, him giving tips to Dave Lombardo of Slayer, you know, back in the day. Cause he used to be, a, uh, I think he was a roadie for Slayer, if I'm yes, not mistaken, was, yeah. way back in the day. And so like, just from a technicality standpoint, like this dude is an innovator. It really is. Yeah. Um, and, but the other thing is that also it swings when you get to the chorus, like this track swings and those drums, that's like, Oh my God. You know, this is a swing beat in the middle of this death metal track. Oh, there's think, a total groove here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that sold me on it. Cause I was already into, uh, you know, sort of, if you remember Pantera, when they hit big, were sort of labeled oh, as gro- wow. groove metal. Um, but you're so right. I, and I didn't, that didn't, dawn on me until literally just now but the pantera element for yeah. sure yeah for yeah, sure it's, it is that and it's not obviously the same at all it doesn't sound the same and it's not the same style and what have you but it has that kind of there is a groove uh and i think that was really what sold me uh initially when i first put this album on you've got obviously you know it sort of blasts the first 30 seconds are just like whoa that's heavy as hell but then yeah then suddenly it grooves and swings and you're like oh wow this is not what i expected from a band called death (laughs) well not only that but then you have andy's leads which are he is very very classically influenced right and so as soon as that element comes in that's when you have visions of king diamond and you know, stuff like that. So that, that it just all works really well together on this first song. Yeah. I think both of the solos actually, cause Chuck and Andy both do solos on this track. And I think they're both really good. They're both very melodic again, not maybe not quite what you would expect. Um, yeah, just, you know, excellent stuff that matches the, that goes with the song, you know, and not again, not at the expense of technicality. They are technical solos, but they're also very melodic. And he's definitely creating something new here because your your brain, my brain at least, when I listen to this album, it keeps predicting what's going to happen next, right? From my own right musical encyclopedia in my head. So it's a, it, it, it's almost like you're on a train and the tracks are being laid in front of you as you're going on this train, and, and your brain is always predicting like where the train tracks are going to go next. And consistently with this guy. It's not where I think. You're wrong, yeah. Which goes back to the whole, like, this is a challenging album mentally to, to yeah. listen to because you're it, it's constantly going against what you think it's going to do. Do you know, I said that ages ago in um, uh, an early, well, relatively early, it was f- from February, the earlier this year, Unjustly Maligned. Uh, I did an episode with Merlin Mann about early REM. Um, oh. And... The and I mean obviously REM and Death, you know, very very different bands. But I, it was the same. One of the things that I always loved about REM was the first time that I sort of listened to, you know, really got into them and listened to a couple of REM albums. It was the same thing. I was trying to, you know, I had in my head, oh okay, they've played these three chords, so the fourth chord will be this, and it wasn't right, you know. And it was, and that was just kept shaking me and jarring me out of my seat and gave me this lifelong love of like unpredictable chord progressions and, and melodies and stuff. And it was the same thing. Yeah. That's I, I, I agree with you completely. When I first listened to this album, I could not predict any of it at all. 
Uh, I wasn't, I don't think I was even trying, you know, maybe subconsciously, but consciously I very quickly realized, oh, okay, this, this album is not in any way going to be predictable. So just like sit back and let it take me wherever it's going to go. Yeah. And in some albums that doesn't work for me because, you know, having grown up on eighties, hard rock and heavy metal, there's, there's a very clear structure, right? Yeah. And so, and even the bands that I listen to that sort of defy that structure still live within a larger structure, Megadeth being a good example of that. And so there, there is an element of my, you know, sort of musical fandom that needs structure. So the albums that really challenge that in a lot of times they lose me. This one did not, it kept me coming but because of the musicianship and because of the combination of elements that he was putting together like it it, it would rather than being off-putting i just found it more interesting yeah what one other thing about uh sort of the album in general but you know that you first notice on this track is um and we talked about his sort of vocal style in terms of you know the sound of his voice but also he has a really strange way of delivering oh like my a god really his strange... cadence is very very <laughs> yeah. very it, different it's so weird like the way he breaks up lines and where he oh. you know where he puts the words compared to the music is just so odd and completely unique i can't think of any other vocalist who i would... honestly can't either yeah and when you un... look at the actual lyrics like i i'm looking at darklyrics.com right now and i'm and i like this site because it actually tells you who does the, the guitar parts as well yes but when you look at it <laughs> It looks like the lyrics from any song might look, and then <laughs> yeah. you listen to it, and the chorus is different, and it's half of a sentence, and this sentence is drawn out, and this one is rammed together. Like he is, his vocal arrangements are just as varied as the guitar. You know, as just yeah. as the composition. The, like he really is treating it like it's another instrument in the song. It, by yeah. the way that he delivers his lyrics that's absolutely it yeah i think that it was that kind of and maybe that's because he wasn't as i say in any way a trained vocalist yeah that he is just delivering it in the way that he you know thinks makes most sense musically uh, regardless of yeah whether that means that he stops halfway through a line <laughs> it's just yeah i mean oh, to me it sounds, sounds like unique. It, the, like i don't care for his vocal i don't care for his vocals the way they sound i mean to, it sounds like a guy that has no diaphragm like he's literally <laughs> able to to inhale maybe a quarter of a cup of air every time that he speaks a sentence and so you know it's like he it sounds like he's consistently like literally every word is strained at the top of his lungs but but again it didn't that was jarring at first, but after I got through the first listen, it, it, it did not anymore. But the way he delivers the lyrics to me, it, very interesting on every song. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to what I said last episode as well, um, you know, sort of they these are kind of you know, quasi Cookie Monster vocals, but again, like I said last week, one of the things I love about them is that he they sound real. You're right; he does sound like he's straining at the edge of his voice. I don't he think sounds he like was. Ren when he's angry at Stimpy. Like where he's yes. literally about to lose his mind on Stimpy, like where, like the, just like that's what it, that's what it reminds me of is where he's like he's completely lost all patience with everything, and he's just straining to get the words out before he kills you. Yeah, which I love. Yeah. I mean, you know that that's kind of that's exactly the attitude I want in a death metal vocalist. I have actually come to enjoy it over the time, but yes, that's that's sort of where that landed for me. All right, and then on to track two, which is in human form. 
People of the earth, beware. It is here in human form. I love the unusual rhythm on this. Oh, yes. Uh, Agreed. It, it is very odd, but one of, the, one of the reasons I love it is it shows the space that he was willing to leave in the music rather than, again, rather than blasting everything at a million miles an hour and leaving no sort of room to breathe, uh, which, you know, was kind of the standard at the time. He was quite happy to leave space and just have bars where he's not playing or quarter bars where he's not playing and leave sort of gaps and holes in the guitar lines. And I love the first lead here that uh, Andy does. It reminds me a lot of Marty Friedman. Just the the way that he delivers that. But yeah, I mean, lyrically, people of the earth beware, it's here in human form, an atrocity laced with greed, filled with evil intentions, ready to attack. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty, it's pretty, (laughs) that's pretty uh, evil. Well, I, I like the concept lyrically of this because, uh, Schuldner allegedly believed, allegedly believed that, uh, because he was often asked about his spiritual beliefs being in a band called Death and whatever, um, and he said on more than one occasion that he believed this world actually is hell, like we are literally living in hell, uh, and the demons, so-called, are actually just evil people, you know, it's just bad, evil people, and I have often wondered if in retrospect, if this track is about that. I mean, there is a reference to sort of alien life and distant planets and stuff, but I have sometimes wondered if maybe that's what he was getting at on this track. Um, Sure. But either way, I like the concept of, yeah, you know, actually evil is already here. It's It's all around you. Uh, It looks just like you and me. Beware. Right. And and basically the, the greed and the evil intentions is how you can tell it apart. Right. Um, and also the, uh, you're right, Andy's lead, uh, the first lead on this after the first verse is, is great, but I also love the, they do a harmonic dual guitar thing on the bridge, on the pre-chorus bridge, uh, with no rhythm guitar chugging at all, just the two of them playing like rhythmic lead, uh, uh, which is just odd, um, you know, but sort awesome. of an old, uh, right, but it sounds great and it's actually quite heavy. And I love the way in in different parts of this album where they do harmonize like that, and the drums pull them in. Yeah, and like it's like everything is kind of all over the place, and then it locks in, and they they just uh, it it actually feels to me like they're having fun doing this. Like this is two musicians that, in in terms of the two guitarists here, that are really just so amazing that they're kind of feeding off of one another. Yeah, I I honestly I've never uh you know sort of read anything with uh Andy LaRock or or even Steve DiGiorgio actually about what they you know sort of what the recording sessions for this album were like. So I don't know if you're right, but you're right. That's it sounds certainly as if they are really enjoying themselves and kind of, you know, yeah, getting into the groove. I read somewhere that Andy LaRock was just like super impressed with Chuck's musicianship. And you know, even but at the time right. that he played on this album he was a very well established and supremely talented guitar player so you know he um that but i didn't read much other than that about it yeah i mean gene hoagland hasn't got enough nice things to say about like his time in death and his love of chuck shoulder uh but you know as much as i love gene hoagland you have to kind of take that with a bit of a pinch of salt because this was basically his big break um he had been in a band before this what were they called uh dark angel uh that had sort of fallen apart um you know he was already a working drummer but this was his big break in this particular this was his first album with uh death so you know as i i love gene hoglan i really do at the same time 
you have to kind of, you know, when he's like, insists that Chuck Schuldner was, you know, an angel, <laughs> you know, you have to kind of think, yeah, right, but he right. did, you know, you basically owe your entire career to the man. So <laughs> it's probably a little bit of bias there. But I also get the feeling from Gene Hoagland because of his level of talent that being able to play with someone who can challenge him. Right, right. It's just like this just amazingly satisfying experience, you know what I mean? Because we, we see, especially nowadays with all of these um, sort of like Frontiers Records is a great example of a company that is putting out a lot of these one-and-done supergroup albums where they pull together a couple of musicians and they do a they do an album, you know, it's like a, a team-up sort of thing where there's a lot of people who are playing on albums that are not challenging them musically at all. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that, yeah, and yeah. so to... I would imagine that him playing with a guy like Chuck, like, gave him a run for his money. Oh, speaking of, actually, that reminds me. Um, I've mentioned it before on this show. Uh, there was a, a an album a bit like that, a sort of, you know, side project thing called Probot that Dave Grohl did. Where... I remember hearing about that, but I don't it's... think I ever listened to it. It's awesome. Absolutely awesome. And he will never do another one because, you know, only about 20 people in the world bought it. But it yep. is fantastic. It's basically, he wrote... A whole because he grew up listening to metal. He's a huge metal guy, um, and he wrote a whole bunch of metal songs in the style of bands that he grew up listening to, and then invited the vocalists from those bands to come and sing on those tracks, and that's the album. So it's not really a supergroup as such, but yeah, it's basically him plus a vocalist. Uh, that sounds awesome in the style of their band. It is brilliant it is so so good uh and there is of course there's a motorhead track on there uh, which was a single actually it was called shake my blood you may have heard that um the uh, the one thing was that lemmy insisted he would only do it if he played bass because david already recorded all the parts and, sure. and lemmy was like nah nah i'm playing bass if you want me i'm, I'm playing bass as well as singing and i'm course, sure that david, wasn't a long argument <laughs> right dave Grohl was like sure yeah <laughs> it was like if you want to record all the bass parts on the whole album i'm fine with that too <laughs> Um, uh, anyway, sorry. And the reason I mention it is because Chuck Schuldner was invited to be on the album. One of the tracks was going to be uh, a sort of death style track with Chuck Schuldner's vocals. But unfortunately it was around the time that he was suffering from, that he'd been diagnosed and was suffering from cancer. Uh, and he, he died before they had chance to do anything, which is such a shame because it would have been so good to say, you've yeah, got to go and nice. listen to that album. It is, it, it's amazing. Uh, if nothing else, because it really showcases Dave Grohl's versatility. Like what an amazing musician. He literally he plays is... every part on the album in all these different styles. It's incredible. I've never been a humongous Foo Fighters fan. And, and I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I was not into Nirvana. I recognize what they were, um, but I was not that ever really into them. But he is ridiculous, and Foo Fighters is a super talented band. I, I watch their concert at Wembley. They show it on VH1 Classic all the time. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, they're yeah, fantastic I, live. Like, I, I've got nothing but great things to say about his musicianship. Yeah, I, I, I did like Nirvana, um, but I'm not a Foo Fighters guy at all. Foo Fighters, you know, just kind of... It just really isn't my thing. But Dave Grohl himself, oh yeah, I have nothing but respect for, uh, and not just because of the Probot album. You know, he is by all accounts just a pretty awesome guy as well. Um, anyway, so but sorry, that was a bit of a bit of a sidetrack. <laughs> uh, so onto track three, and that is jealousy. <laughs> Thank you. 
what is not yours jealousy you want what you cannot have jealousy yeah no prizes for guessing what this one's about right (laughs) but you know what my favorite part of this song is the bent bass notes i I was getting to that good lord yeah since like that's the cool thing about this album is like everyone has everyone shines on this album that's what i love about it is like you could uh, and again, in the multiple times that I listen to this, you know, one time I'm just focusing on Hogan's drums, another time I'm just focusing on the bass line, and it's all there's. It's just so well layered. Like, and and there are songs where everybody gets a chance to shine, and I love that. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is, I think, the first time in the album that you that you realize you fully realize. Oh wow, he's playing a fretless bass. Which and is not just again playing what the ever living crap out of it. Well, yeah, sure, but you know, a fretless bass on a death metal album, really. Um, but that's actually really uh, that's significant to me because it was the first album I heard really that sort of demonstrated that you could do odd things with the bass in heavy metal, like on preg- on regular prog rock stuff. Sure, the bass is always off doing its own thing, um, but in metal, you know, even Lemmy. And, you know, Lemmy did not play bass like other bassists. No, no, he did <laughs> um, not. But he was still essentially playing, you know, the sort of the chord progression. He was playing literally chords rather than single notes, but he was still playing the chord, you know, progression and the and the regular rhythm. Um, but this, and an album that came out the following year, Wait, by Rollins Band, uh, which had Melvin Gibbs, another jazz player, on bass, really showed me anyway, that you could do some really, like, weird things on the bass, uh, especially if you have a fretless, um, in a metal record, and it can still sound really heavy. And that is why I played fretless bass for years, like, in various, you know, metal and goth rock bands. Uh, And that's why I got a fretless, was because of this album. Because I was just like, that is astounding. I want to be able to do that. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good. And I love, uh, there are a lot of musical contrasts in this track as well. Like you've got that sort of rolling, bouncing melody uh, that it starts with. And then, yeah, those wah, wah, bass wumps. And yeah, it's just got this sort of alien weirdness to it. And I really, it's got the, it's got this uncomfortable unsettlingness to it, which again, the name of the song is Jealousy. So it, I think it, it captures this kind of uncomfortable emotion well, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then it does hit like a blast beat 
punch in the chorus and the middle eight, you know, and you're sort of on relatively familiar territory. But then, yeah, then you come out of that familiar territory quite quickly. <laughs> but that's the thing is they like in every song, whether it's your whether it really clicks with you or not overall as a song, like there's always something for you to hold on to there. And and that's again like when I talk about Slayer a lot, I talk about there's always a riff in a Slayer song that you can latch on to even if the rest of the song isn't blowing you away. Um and here like they they always have a little something for everybody in almost every song. Like, so even if you're not a fan of the main riff, the baseline will get you or the, the, you know, or the drums will get you or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, uh, and then track four is trapped in a corner. was a little bit Slayer-esque for me. That was the note I made to it. it, it, it Riff-wise, it felt a little slayer Yeah, I guess. Yeah, actually, I can see that. Yeah, because it it's another good rhythm. It's slightly off-kilter, but you can still headbang to it. And which the riffs is, during the solos, incredible. And the solos on yes. the song are just rippers. Yeah, they really are. And it, it's another one that's got, it sort of breaks into a swing pattern, uh, you know, at one point as well. And the halftime chorus... Uh, you know, sort of brings you down, and yeah, you're right. Actually, it is a bit slayerish, and I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, and lyri- uh, lyrically, I want to watch you drown in your lies. The end of your masquerade, a matter of time, dude. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, the lyrics on this album, top to bottom, are pretty great. They are. There and, are some real gems. Th- yeah, and actually, lyrically, this is kind of slayer esque. Uh, as well, this oh, yeah, particular yeah. track. Drowning in Lies is definitely a Slayer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of Drowning in Lies on Slayer out. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, lyrically, I, I have no idea specifically what this is about. It could be it could be anyone from, like, a politician to, sure. you know, a two musician that he'd fallen out with. Yep. Um, but something that runs through Sheldon's lyrics in these later albums is a real distaste for hypocrisy. Uh, and it's clear that, you know, that that is what this is about. Uh, and that actually reminds me of something else I meant to mention earlier, which is that we're talking about my, how the sort of, you know, the gore uh, and evil stuff lyrics on a lot of death metal albums just don't interest me that much. Um, yep. And that's one of the things I love about Napalm Death. Like again, Napalm Death, not a band that most people would think <laughs> I'm into. Uh, I am partly because they're from the same town as me. Uh, they're all Brummies. Uh, well, I say they're all Brummies. They were when they formed, anyway. Um, uh, partly because they all used to go to, we all used to go to the same nightclub. Um, and, uh, you know, I have bumped into Shane Embry on the way out of the toilets. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and, I bumped uh, into George Romero in, in, uh, in the bathroom one time. 
Oh, wow. Uh, and Jesse Pintado regularly used to mac on my then-girlfriend uh, at that oh. particular club. <laughs> that was always fun. He'd get drunk and, like, start leering. That's a um, pleasant memory. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that all of that aside, uh, I love Napalm Death because, obviously, you know, it's really extreme music. But their lyrics, if you actually, I mean, you, you know, you can't sort of make them out, obviously. But if you read the lyric sheets, they are all about social issues, political stuff. Uh, you know, sort of left-leaning anarchist politics and all that sort of stuff and the degradation of society yep. and the hypocrisy of politicians and all this sort of stuff. You know, they don't, contrary to what people think of or a lot of mainstream people think of when they, you know, mention Napalm Death, is they don't do lyrics about blood and guts and gore and horror movie stuff. They are all very, very socially conscious. Um, and so when Chuck Schuldner sort of started moving his lyrics towards that, uh, on these albums, as I say, that was partly what got me interested, was like, oh, okay, this is something quite different from your regular death metal. Um, and it's very much in evidence on this album, and especially, particularly, I think, in this track. Uh, and then, so, on to... Nothing is everything. A This is this has a great intro. But I thought it is, so too. It's probably my least favorite track on the album, if I'm honest. It's honestly the only. Th- I only have one note, and it's about the uh, the intro itself feeling a little more. I had said epic at the time, but I'm yeah, no, just it is kind a of, little, just yeah. kind of big. You know what I mean? But the song itself then didn't necessarily deliver on that promise. But it started from a place that I thought it would. I, I'm I'm in agreement. It's uh, it, it is a kind of yeah a very atmospheric, epic style intro, and then the track itself uh, is just. I mean, there are some bits of it that are really nice. There's a melodic bit that kicks in when he sings "Look deep into their eyes," right? Uh, and Di Giorgio is again just like walking all over the fretboard underneath, uh, and that that bit's good. But the rest of it, it's not bad. But that uh, goes back to a thing that I made a note. Let me see if I could find my note on it. Uh, my note was, I wish some of the more memorable elements were explored more. And, like, this is a good example about that. Right. Just just overall on the album. Like, there, are, uh, there were times where I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then right when I was hoping they would dive a little bit deeper into that, they went in a different direction. Which I think overall is a strength of the album, as we talked about. Like, they're constantly challenging what you think is going to happen next. But... I I like to be indulged every once in a while. Like <laughs> like go down that rabbit hole. Let's 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 dive deeper into that. Let's expand you know what you're doing right there. And so this was one of those where I I really liked the opening of the song and then I didn't much care for the direction the rest of it went in. 
Right. And that's actually, uh, do you remember the Slayer album? When we were talking about Slayer, that was something that happened there. And, you know, there were several parts on that album where I was that like... That is my re- critique on that band as a whole. Yeah, I really it, like that. I But we only hear it once. Yep. Uh, that's a, with, that's, that is my life's experience with Slayer. I love Slayer. Uh, and I've seen them almost as many times as I've... They're probably my second most seen band in terms of live shows. But... And there's an element in every Slayer song that I absolutely adore, but usually it's just a short, explored element. It's a riff that they play for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and then they go on. And so that that's why that's what keeps them from being, you know, at the top of the big four for me is that is that thing. And um, I don't here. I think the music is more diverse anyways on this death album than on most Slayer albums. So there's plenty of other things to latch onto, but yeah, that's, it's the same, certainly the same sort of feeling. Yeah, it is. It is kind of frustrating, especially with, as I say, when you get a track like this, which the intro kind of promises, you know, <laughs> promises something great. And then it's, it's kind of not so great, which is a shame. Uh, yeah. And, and for, this- like for Slayer, my favorite Slayer songs are the ones where the entire song is built around that great riff, as opposed to it just right. being a break. Uh, and incidentally, this is the when on the vinyl. This was the last track on side one. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a bit of a shame because yeah, you know, it's not the best track to end on, really. Um, but you know, but there you go. And then yeah, we you uh, turn over as it would have been with uh, vinyl, and uh, we got to first track of side two, which is obviously track six, and that is mentally blind. song i think so if this is the beginning of side two i think they come out strong i agree i agree straight back onto the horse with this one it's got a cracking opening rhythm and uh, it's kind of like ho- a dreamy riff in the chorus that i really like too yes well that's the thing you've got this lovely kick work from hoglan uh and it you know it's kind of it's all a bit you know heavy uh and you've got sort of this short pre-chorus bridge which is real like blast beat stuff and then the chorus you've got keyboards you've yep. got a choir <laughs> Yeah, I, my, my note here was like becomes a little King Diamondy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess actually, yeah, yeah. Which again, I mean, just having Andy in that band to me, it, I just I kept going there. You know what I mean? And I I felt like that that sort of atmosphere pokes its head up in a few songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as I know, this is the only track that has a keyboard part uh, on this album. I can't think of any other tracks that have a keyboard. Um, 
And yeah, and it's but it's used perfectly for perfectly. yeah. You've got that like soaring lead line that he sings along with with mentally blind and oh, it's just it's amazing. What a great and chorus! Holgren's drums. I mean, geez, I mean, you can yes. say this on every song, but perfection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and then it changes rhythm again, and you get a sort of marching tempo, which again, you know, Hoglan delivers brilliantly for the middle eight. Um, and as I was listening to it, now I have listened to this album for what would that be, 23 years now. Uh, and it was only when I was listening to it in the context of making notes for the show that I realised that bits of this, especially in the bridge, remind me of early Genesis. There's huh. that band again. Like, there are certain early Genesis tracks, like uh, Watcher of the Skies and Apocalypse in 9-8, which have that kind of stuttering stop-start rhythm that you get in the bridge. In this, sorry, in the middle eight in this. Um, now, I have no idea if that is an actual influence, you know, if Chuck had even heard of Genesis. <laughs> but, uh, mm. but yeah, it was a nice thing to suddenly think, ha, actually, yeah, this really does remind me of, like, early progressive rock stuff in some ways. I love when you can pick out those influences in metal of other genres. I, I think that's awesome. This is another song for me, though, where the lyrics are just freaking awesome from the mentally blind come ideas that are poison take away the power a shallow a shallow person you will find just freaking awesome yeah yeah what would you do without your pathetic narrow-minded approach to life that reflects your lack of abilities your opinions are self-destructive yeah i mean just evergreen lyrics right obviously (laughs) yeah it's great uh and again i i mean i don't know with this one uh, I don't know for sure with any of them, um, but I suspect that this is one of the tracks that is kind of having a go at other people in the death metal scene. But this is like a great example of like what we talked about earlier, like the, how metal is therapy, right? I mean, yeah. y- you can look at the world around you now, and there's so many th- there's so many times where you sort of say to yourself, like, "Am I crazy? Am I the only one that sees this, or am I the only one that sort of realizes this?" And to have music that captures that frustration and also lyrically sort of reflects what's going on in your own head. It's just so cathartic to be able to be like, no, I'm not crazy that this guy gets it. Like, you know, he he gets it. Like it's not, these are universal themes that we're talking about here. And, uh, and I just love that. Right. Right. And we exactly. And, and, you know, we may be thinking of different specific people or situations, but the feelings, as you say, are universal. And so, you know, that's how you connect. And I mean, why... just that's from the mentally blind come ideas that are poison. I know. Like, it's that's great, a freaking t shirt right there. Man. Like, that's <laughs> <laughs> like that. Truer words have never been spoken. Like, there, there are some real gems in his lyrics for sure. Yeah. I just love the idea of being mentally blind as well. I don't think uh-huh. I'd ever come across that concept before. Yeah, what I a great it. way to phrase it. You yeah. know, it's fantastic. Um, so then we move on to track seven, the title track. Individual thought patterns. Not 
Yes, which is a very interesting song. It's got this sort of galloping, kind of chasing riff to it that I really like. Right. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's good. Um, this actually, this is another one that actually, despite being the title track, really kind of isn't my favourite. I like the chorus and the middle eight and the solo, um, but the main sort of part of it, the verses and the pre-chorus bridge, don't really connect for me. It's kind of, for me, it feels like they're missing something, which is a yeah. shame because, you know, as I say, I do like the other bits, but the whole thing just doesn't quite come together for me. I would definitely question why, I mean... I, it's a great title, right? So you can see why it became the title of the album. Yeah, but when you yeah. think of title tracks, you think of like, it's got to be one of the most killer songs in the album, right? If you're going to name the album after that. And I don't think it lives up to that necessarily. But this is another song where, like, lyrically, followers to the leaders of mass hypnotic corruption that live their lives only to criticize. Yeah. Where is the invisible line that we must draw to create individual thought patterns? I mean, dude. Oh yeah, this guy's freaking lyrically. Lyrically, it's amazing. I love it. It's very, very powerful, and it's a sentiment that I, you know, wholeheartedly agree with. Um, And yeah, you're right. You know, title-wise, you can absolutely see why it was the title for the album. Given that he he must have known, you know, and he intended for this album to be a statement of we are not the same as other death metal bands. Exactly. Yes. Right. So it makes perfect sense thematically with like why what he was trying to accomplish and why he would name the album that. Yeah, totally. Uh, and as I say, lyrically, it is absolutely great. Yeah, um, but yeah, musically, as I say, I just I, ag- I just don't think it all hangs together. And I agree, it's kind of weird that the title track actually is one of the sort of least musically ambitious tracks on the album. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but you could see probably when he wrote the lyrics for it, he was like, "Oh, this is going to be oh yeah yeah <laughs> you know centerpiece <laughs> kind of stuff here." So yeah. But then the next song, number eight, which is Destiny. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And starts with the acoustic guitar. I love it. Love it. (laughs) Like, when that's used sparingly, man. And and how sparingly? It's literally the only uh, instance of acoustic guitar on the album. Yeah, and and certainly, when I was thinking sparingly, I was thinking, like, as you said, on the one song on the album, I would have liked for that to be explored a little bit more within the song. um, Because you, you... 
it's a tease, you know, in terms because it's just so good. Like the that opening acoustic line is just so good. It really is, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it, you know, from the acoustic, you get this smacked in the face by the drums and the guitar. Well, um, and everybody can take a, a drink here because this had me thinking of Queensryche's "Take Hold of the Flame." <laughs> so everybody can, if you're still with us, take a drink now. <laughs> um, but again, once you get past the sort of like you know, yeah, the the big smack in the face, you get another uh, sort of soaring lead line with no rhythm chugging. You know, like like that instance earlier right. with Giorgio and Hoglan carrying the rhythm again while the rest of the song kind of breathes. And I think that really is one of the reasons why this track stands out musically as, as a really good one, apart from the lovely acoustic guitar at the beginning. And then, of course, the lyrics, time is a thing we must accept, the, the unexpected I sometimes fear, just when I feel there's no excuse for what happens, things fall into place. Yeah, I think this is one of the tracks, I think this is the specific track that's about his brother right. uh, on this album. I mean, again, you know, don't know for sure, but from what I know about what happened with his brother and, you know, reading these lyrics, I'm like, this sounds very much like, yeah, you know, a song about, well, like I said, how ironically you know he it was his brother's death that got him playing guitar and well, led to you know where they are where they were when they made this album so and then obviously with what happened in his own life later on i mean just like the it comes all back around you know there's a lot of uh, one of the notes i made is i felt like there's a lot of existential dread in the solos <laughs> like i felt like there's a, just just a lot of like it you could i thought you could sort of feel that that kind of struggle yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, musically and lyrically, it's all there. And as I say, I, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that, I mean, in a wider sense, I'm sure it's just about fate and mortality and sure. stuff. But I, I do think that this is probably the track on the album that's, yeah, you know, specifically about his brother. And maybe um, it's just because I'm in my early 40s now and feel that dread closing in on a daily basis that that, right. uh, that, re- <laughs> that really clicked with me. Dude, tell me about it. Oh, my God. Um, like, if you're under 30... <laughs> You're a kid now. Uh, I just want yeah. to put that out there. Like, I, it's so funny to me how uh, we just had a big long discussion at my work the other day about like how differently, man, when you hit forty, just how differently everything feels and how you see the world and stuff. So, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so, well, so this song resonated with me. Let's just put it that way. And and literally feels in some instances. Like I've got a, uh, <laughs> I developed some kind of weird pain in my shoulder while I was at the uh, working out at the gym yesterday morning that I'm pretty sure wouldn't have happened five or ten years ago. Right. <laughs> to me, it's more the anxiety of like, oh, I have to write every story now. Who knows how long I'll have? Like, I have to get everything out now. Every project oh, has yeah, to be yeah, done. Yeah. Like, it's like this never-ending hourglass that's behind you of like, hurry up and get that thing done because you got to do the next thing now. Oh, I've had you that only have so many since, things to do. <laughs> yeah, I've had that actually since pretty much since I started, since I sort of deliberately became determined, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a writer. Uh-huh. From that from that moment, I've had that feeling of like, got to write everything now, write yep. all the things. <laughs> yep, absolutely. That thing can't sit on the shelf. That thing that needs to get out now. Who knows what happens yep. tomorrow? <laughs> exactly. Yep, totally. Uh, anyway, on that cheery note. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> on to track nine, which is Out of Touch. Trapped in a lost world of brutality So we got the walls, cameras, we got a shop To put this so-called force that inspires their power Out of touch 
this was another sort of almost gothic-y opening with the synths and stuff like really that. Like dramatic, I, yeah. Yes, very dramatic, very, um, again, like, the, to me, I I know that it's, it, Andy is not necessarily bringing that here, but it, it, to me, it just feels fitting anytime they sort of delve into that. Yeah. Uh, and lyrically, I mean, this one just rips into the death metal scene. Oh, this is... <laughs> to be extreme, so it seems, is a mental crutch to cover up for those that are completely out of touch. Yep. I love, uh, in time we'll see who lasts. In time you will disappear. Oh. Who are you to question my sincerity? <laughs> like, yep. This is not subtle, man. <laughs> no. You don't, there's not a lot of interpretation needed. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, but it's almost musically, it's almost like the main verse is kind of mocking that because musically the, the main verse is really like almost cliched blast beat death metal. Right. Uh, and then it slows down to a crawl for the chorus. Um, so it's kind of an odd one. It's not bad musically, but it's like given that this song appears to be. Yeah, like really ripping into the death scene. For- but maybe he thought, I have to keep it that way for the people that I want to hear this message to actually listen to it. Ah, you know, yeah, you could be onto something. Like, there. here's some candy that you're used to, except listen to what I'm trying to tell you here. Yeah, except it's got razor blades in it. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you could be right. I hadn't thought about that, yeah. Um, but it, again, it is a good track. And uh, yeah, lyrically, once again, uh, great. Uh, the lead uh, solo on this, however, is is a bit of a mess. Not not my favourite. Yep. Um, and then finally, track ten, the philosopher. What a great bookend. Uh, it's just, it's, it is a great bookend. And yes, uh, anybody wondering, this is the Beavis and Butthead song uh, with the video, with the candles and the little boy running backwards and all that. Yep. And it j- uh, just somber and epic and t- like a, what, just a textbook like ending song. Yeah, it really is. It's, uh, you know, it, you're right. It feels epic. The intro is great. It ends the album on a high note. The main riff and rhythm on this are just so good uh you know so simple but so effective and then the chorus is just great it's a real it's a proper chorus which again you know you don't hear an awful lot in this sort of metal (laughs) um and of course it's got steve DiGiorgio's again fantastic warm warm, bending bass bass. just really like just Uh, 
he's all over the place. But one thing I did think, though, as I listened to it is like, I wonder how Anthony feels about the ending because it's not, it's that whole jamming into infinity thing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've actually got a specific note about that. Yeah. About the play out, um, which is, I, I do wish that it didn't fade out. But while it's fading out, you've got DiGiorgio just going oh, crazy. He makes it worth uh, your while. It reminds me a little yeah. bit of um, uh, George Lynch from Dokken, who Dokken used to do that with a lot of their... They, they, which I imagine when we get to our Dokken episode, which will come at some point, that will drive you crazy because many of their songs <laughs> do not end. But but to make up for it, in many of their songs, George Lynch plays the most incredible solos you've ever heard on the way out into infinity. And so I'm okay right. with that, which is the same thing here with the bass. Yeah, yeah, you've got George, and he's right at the high end of the bass as well, doing all these like little bits and stuff, and Sheldon is wailing away in the background as well. Um, as I say, I do wish that it didn't fade out, but as fade outs go, it's one of the better ones for sure. You know so much about nothing at all. <sighs> What, I mean, what a fucking great line. <laughs> it is a great line, but then I also think about my encyclopedic knowledge of 80s horror movies and 80s metal music, and I think to myself, am I the philosopher when <laughs> no! it comes to that? <laughs> but no, he's clearly talking about, uh, you know, this This is meant in a different way. But uh, well, he says, do you I, live my life or share the the breath I breathe? Lies feed your judgment of others. I think that this track is actually about a specific person. Uh, I'm sure I remember reading somewhere that this track is about a specific evangelical preacher who, uh, you know, sort of very big in, maybe just sort of big in Florida or something, I don't know, but big in the 80s and 90s who preached homophobia and was then discovered to be uh, paying for sex with red right. boys. Like it's a, it's essentially a, you know, uh, like some of the themes in some of the other songs in this album, him saying, y- you're so full of shit. Right, right. Like just your, totally whole, your whole shtick is just a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that that line, the philosopher, you know so much about nothing at all. I yeah, mean, that's one to think on. That is just fucking great. That is a classic, and it's filled with contempt as well. Oh, it so- is so dis- <laughs> like there is a there is a layer of disgust in this yeah. song that is yes. palpable. Yeah, disgust is exactly the way to put it. Yeah, it's ah so great. Which he and, does good, and in in that way, I think the way that he delivers his vocals and even the sound of his voice works very well when he is disgusted with someone. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, and that's partly again. I'll say, you know, if you like this album, you really should give Symbolic a listen because while Symbolic is more proggy, uh, there are you know there are lots of lots more elements like that you know symbolic is really sort of socio-political in its lyrics and just um, the title of the song the philosopher is just like a big middle finger like you know because <laughs> yeah. it just it just speaks about someone who just thinks they're so like high and mighty and you know uh so intellectual i i just love that yeah yeah it really is great yeah, a, i mean this, the, 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 it might the the title might be like the philosopher go fuck yourself like the that. philosopher of <laughs> shit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, like it's just, you could just see him sort of, you know, waving a hand at the guy, like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. The hollow intellectual. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, and that's the end of the album and it's only 40, 41 minutes, uh, but 41 excellent minutes. Yeah. Um, and, and because it's so, such a sort of, uh, makes you pay attention to it. Like it feels longer than it is, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. It's got that, uh, you know, that sort of quality of feeling like a sort of big epic, even though it doesn't actually take up that much time. Um, right, you have to engage with it, and so being engaged with it throughout 
there's an investment there that you probably with a lot of other albums you can get away with checking in and out this one you you need to be present yeah absolutely absolutely true um i'm glad you enjoyed it i mean i i did have a suspicion that musically it would appeal to you because it is very technical um but i was i was worried about whether you'd be able to get past chuck's vocals (laughs) no and to be honest i think that the i don't want to say that aman amarth has broken me of that but it definitely went a long way to making that much less of a factor for me. You know what right. I mean? Whereas that used to be a door closer for me. That is more of uh, just an initial hurdle now. And right. Now now it's more like, okay, well, if you can justify it, then I'll go along with it. Exactly. And, and certainly justified here, because as we talked about from a, a musicianship level, from a lyrical level, uh, there's so much that's great about this album that you would be doing yourself a disservice if you let the vocals keep it keep you from getting into it. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I mean, of course, I'd agree. It's one of my favorite <laughs> right. albums. No. But good pick, though, man. Like you definitely won me over with that, and I will check out their next album and um, and just see sort of where the sound progressed from here. Yeah, like I say, the the if nothing else, the production on Symbolic is like you know just so from a purely sonic ter- you know in purely sonic terms just leaps and bounds ahead of this one yep. but like i say on the other hand it kind of takes the edge off a bit uh and so and that's why i picked this album rather than symbolic because symbolic is great and i do love it and it has some really classic tracks on it like a thousand eyes and crystal mountain and stuff uh but it doesn't have the the edge that this album does i don't think uh, and i do like an album with a bit of edge and I never saw them play live, but I have seen Andy LaRocque with King Diamond when the, when I saw them on the Mayhem Festival. Oh, right, so, right. Uh, so if you like Andy LaRocque stuff on this album, you should absolutely check out King Diamond if you haven't. And then uh, DiGiorgio and Hoagland are both now currently in Testament, so you can hear them ha- on the album that just Testament, came out. Have you seen Testament with them performing? I want to say yes, but I'll have to go back and see. I saw them on the Formation of Damnation tour which I'm not sure if he played drums on or not, but I've also seen them before then too. And I am going to see them. um, The New England hardcore metal, I forget what the name of it is, but there's a festival coming to Worcester, Massachusetts that has, um, I want to say, Testament, Sepultura, and Prong on one bill together. Um, And I am definitely going to see that. I just got tickets for Overkill, which is coming in March, because I have not seen them yet, so I'm psyched about that. But Testament is coming, too, to the same place, and I will be going to see them. So I'm assuming I'll see him with them on this tour. Right, yeah. I think they both joined for Dark Roots of Earth, which was after Formation of Damnation, I think. Oh, wait, was it Dark Roots Uh, of the Earth that I saw them on, though? Huh, I'll have to think about that. I might have seen them on that tour with Megadeth and Slayer. I gotta look back. Yeah, I'm not sure. Let me just. See. But wait, yeah. did Gene yeah, Hoagland? Did he do? Oh no, that was Paul Bostaff. I was thinking God hates us all, but that was Paul Bostaff that did right. that. Right, another yeah, Paul Bostaff and Gene Hoagland, and uh, they all kind of all these drummers that sort of just rotate around these bands. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, what's his name? John Tempester as well. He's another one. Yep. Um, who I know has been in Testament, but was also in White Zombie and God knows what else. And yeah, but yeah, I was right. I was just looking at it here. Formation of Damnation was the album before Dark Roots of Earth. Yeah. Um, and I think Dark Roots of Earth was, 
I'm pretty sure that was when DiGiorgio joined, at least. Uh, I'm not so sure about Gene Hoglan, but anyway. If you're going to see them on Brotherhood of the Snake Tour, then they're both on that album, I'm yep. sure. So, yeah, that would be pretty cool. And I will most definitely go see King Diamond again, because that live show that I saw with him before got me into that band. I was like, yeah. holy crap, how how late to the party am I on this freaking band? So. <laughs> That's like me with Dio. <laughs> it's like, he's dead. <laughs> now I'm finally getting into it. I know, right? <laughs> oh man all right okay let's wrap it up there um and i will say uh, as always of course to everyone thanks for listening uh remember if you enjoy the show please spread the word rate us on itunes and you can of course support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out if you want to get in touch go to thrash for links to email and our twitter accounts or of course you can join the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out and we are now on the google play store as well oh yes happened over the past week or so so if you are on the android platform you do use i use google play for music all the time but they now have expanded their support for podcasts in the last year or so so they're they're a little bit more legit in that area and we are on there now so you can subscribe to us there you can, unless you're in the UK, uh, which right. is actually why I forgot, because you handled all of that, because I literally can't even get to the store. Um, uh, yeah, it's a bit poor, that is, Google. Uh, but yes, if you're not in the UK, if you're in the US uh, and on Android, then absolutely, yeah, you can uh, find us there now as well. Um, as I said earlier, this is the last show of 2016 uh, and the last regular episode of Volume 2, but we will be doing uh, another bonus track for this volume and we'll put that out in the new year. Um, but we're not going to say what it's about. Haha. Uh, and of course, we will do another video show answering patron questions probably around the same time. Uh, and then we'll be back with Volume 3 before you know it. So wherever you are, have a happy holidays and a great new year. And here's to 2017. Because, let's face it, it couldn't be much fucking worse than 2016. Oh, it's got to be better. It's, it really it does at least we'll, be, so. At least we know we'll have great music to talk about. Indeed. So keep thrashing, and we'll see you then. Take care, everybody. <laughs>